We are continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke, and by now Jesus is about three quarters of the way through his earthly ministry, and he has kind of homed in on what it looks like and what it means to be one of his disciples. So if there was any question at the beginning of Jesus' ministry about what it looked like to be a disciple or what Jesus was calling his followers to, Jesus essentially has erased all doubt, especially over these last few chapters as we've kind of walked through Luke, chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and now into chapter 18. In fact, last week we saw Jesus giving this parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector, two men who both went up to the temple to pray, and they prayed two prayers, and yet only one, the tax collector of all people, went home justified. And the point was clear, wasn't it? We are powerless to save ourselves. Our merit before God does not bring us any closer to him, doesn't make us right with him. Like the only hope of salvation we have is, like the tax collector, to throw ourselves on the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God and pray, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this morning in our text, Luke, our Holy Spirit-inspired author, is, is continuing this same theme, and he tells us about another event related to the same question that we've looked at week after week after week. And the question is this, who gets access into God's family? Like who gets in to the saving mission of God? Who is saved? And what we find is Jesus revealing yet again that access is granted to the most unlikely of people and in the most unlikely of ways. So follow along. I'm going to read again our text. Tabor did a great job, so I'm not reading it because I want to correct anything. I'm reading it. So we hear it again, and since it's only three verses, it's worth revisiting again. Verse 15, the word of the Lord says, now they were bringing even infants to him, Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So picture this. Jesus is in the midst of his ministry, his popularity is growing, more and more people are flocking to Jesus to hear him, to see him minister, to maybe watch him heal and maybe do a miracle or two. Jesus is trending on all the the social platforms of the day, and he's at the point in his ministry where probably the... uh, the leadership gurus would say, okay, you need to begin to kind of like separate yourself from the masses. You need to really kind of turn and just invest your time, your energy, the best of your resources in those who are kind of high capacity, high yield potential leaders. At least that's what the disciples thought. 
Like the last thing you want to do, Jesus, is spend lots of your time and lots of your energy around children of all people. And so you can maybe imagine what the conversation went like among Jesus' disciples as they were kind of noticing that more and more parents were bringing their infants to Jesus for Jesus to, to hold them and lay his hands on them and pray over them. And I don't know, maybe Peter said to to John, you know what? Like, have you noticed all these parents? Like, look at all the parents bringing their kids to Jesus. John's like, I know, you should have been here yesterday. It was worse. It's like half the day, parents just child after child after child. Like, you would think that they thought he had nothing better to do with his time than to, like, just put his hands on babies and touch babies and pray over them and then send them away. Like, what are we gonna do? And so they hatch a plan. Now, before we talk about what their plan is, it's a a good place here to hit pause for a minute and ask an important question. And the question is this, why were these parents bringing their infants to Jesus? Why did they want Jesus to touch their babies? And the answer is, we don't know. (laughs) The Bible doesn't tell us. In fact, when we look at the parable retelling of this in Matthew 19, Matthew adds that they wanted Jesus to lay their hands on their children and to pray, but we're not told exactly why. So I want to just kind of offer out for you this morning two possibilities. And let's just be clear, these are both hypotheses. We don't know exactly why these parents are bringing their children to Jesus. One option is that these parents had heard about Jesus' ministry. Potentially, they had heard him preach. They'd seen some of his miracles. They'd seen him heal people, and they wanted Jesus to touch their children in order to prolong their child's life. We know just from studying the times, first century culture, that 30% of babies died before their first year. That 49% of babies born actually made it to their fifth birthday. Which is tragic. It meant that a little over half of all children born would actually make it to age five. And so it could be that these parents had maybe heard news about Jesus healing people. And maybe they had heard about Jesus' power even over death. And so they, they're like, we're bringing our kids to Jesus so that maybe Jesus will hold them. Maybe Jesus would lay his hands on them. Maybe Jesus would pray over them. And maybe, just maybe, they would have a longer life. That's one option. Another option is that these parents had heard about Jesus, had heard about his ministry, and they remembered that all the way back in the Old Testament, when a representative of God or a prophet or a religious leader wanted to demonstrate God's covenantal blessing on his people, they would often lay hands on those people. That it was a sign of God's favor. In fact, the elders and the scribes in Israel would do this on the eve of the Day of Atonement. And so these parents, after hearing Jesus teach and Jesus minister and Jesus heal, they begin to put two and two together and think, maybe this guy actually is a prophet. 
Maybe he actually speaks with the authority of the Old Testament scribes. Maybe he does speak on behalf of Yahweh. If we can just get our child to Jesus and he lays his hands on them, it will bless them. Yahweh would do them good and not evil all the days of their life. Again, we don't know the exact reason why these parents bring their infants to Jesus, but we do know how the disciples respond, don't we? They rebuke the parents. Verse 16, Jesus called them to him, or excuse me, verse 16, or 15, the end of verse 15, when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. You can imagine what the disciples might have been thinking. Like, Jesus is busy. Like, this is Jesus. Maybe he had time for this when he began his ministry, when he didn't have as many followers, but now Jesus is an influencer, right? Like, there are people following, people flocking to Jesus, people walking around, halfway around the lake, so that they can hear Jesus teach and see him minister, so they can get a few moments with Jesus. He has all these important things to attend to. And infants... They don't give much in return. Like, they're not going to go out and contribute to the ministry of the kingdom of God right now. Like, they're so helpless. They're so unhelpful. Like, it would be better for Jesus to invest his time where bigger returns can be found with high potential people ministering, perhaps, to a broader crowd. The disciples saw these infants as a distraction. is that which gets in the way of more important things. Have you ever been tempted to think that way? It's understandable we are, by nature, bent to be selfish with our time, with our energy, with our goals, with our sleep. We live in a world where kids, especially babies, in fact, most of all, those in the womb are viewed as a hurdle to living the good life, as a distraction from that which is desirable. And we hear that liturgy from our broken, fallen world around us all the time. I'll just mention again, I've mentioned it before, notice the lack of children in any sort of commercial or advertisement for any product that is viewed as luxurious. whether it's a car commercial or a vacation commercial or a home community, that the message is clear. Children are a distraction. They keep you from getting up and being able to play 18 holes with your friends in the morning. Lay out on the beach in the afternoon. Go to a nice dinner in the evening with friends. Sometimes they don't sleep at night. Sometimes they get sick. Sometimes they don't act and do what we want them to act and do. And just in case we're tempted to think that the disciples are politely saying here um, to these parents, yeah, so uh, Jesus is full today, he's booked, but I'll tell you what, let me look through his schedule and I'm sure we can find an opening. That's not what's going on, and we know that's not what's going on because the word used here, rebuke, in verse 15, is the same word used for what Jesus does when he speaks to demons. 
Like, this is not the disciples' finest hour. They are rebuking these parents. They are responding to these parents the way Jesus does to demons. And so you might be wondering, like, how in the world could the disciples get this so wrong? I mean, they have lived with Jesus and ministered with Jesus and been around Jesus for at least a couple of years now. They've heard Jesus preach and teach. They've seen what he's done. In fact, Jesus has been teaching here, even in Luke, about the countercultural value system of the kingdom of God. Like, it was the tax collector, not the Pharisee, that received salvation. Just like it was Lazarus, not the rich man, and the prodigal son, not the older brother, and the woman with the issue of blood, and the foreign military leader, and the Gentile leper who all received God's grace. And the disciples, they were there when Jesus said in Luke 9.48, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For whoever is the least among you is the one who is great. Should not these disciples have known better? I mean, we would not have done this. Like our actions always align with what we've been taught, right? And Jesus' disciples are exhibiting the shared experience of every Christian at one time or another. Because our living doesn't always keep up with our hearing. Our living doesn't always keep up with our believing. We hear God's word. We read it. We see how it's calling us to change. But so often our actions don't follow along as quickly. And the gap between what we know to be true and how we actually live, that gap is usually where we get into trouble, isn't it? In fact, this is one of the reasons for biblical counseling in the church and for discipleship groups in the church and for godly hospitality in the church and for healthy accountability in the church. It's one of the reasons for the local church because we need one another to help together to close that gap, to learn to live out what we know to be true so that our actions align with our beliefs. We all need each other for that. I'm so thankful that Jesus intervenes here. Like it would have been easy, I think, for Jesus just to write off the disciples. <laughs> like, really, guys, after all this time? All right, let's start again. I need 12 volunteers, right? <laughs> but he doesn't do that. He intervenes just like he intervenes in our lives when we get it wrong. The disciples try to stop the children, but what Jesus does is Jesus stops the disciples. Look at verse 16. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus stops the disciples from their foolishness and at the same time he welcomes 
children. So his attitude is counter everything that our world and their world would have valued. Again, children offered little in return, and they required a lot, and yet Jesus welcomes them. And in so doing, he takes time to make a very important point about the kingdom of God. Now, we've talked a lot about the kingdom of God over the last several months as we've been making our way through Luke, but I want to just kind of give a parenthesis for a few moments again, because I think it's always important for us to understand what the kingdom of God is, what we mean when we talk about the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is a term that sounds impressive, doesn't it? Because it is impressive. The kingdom of God is both unlike and like other kingdoms that we might think about. So it's unlike other kingdoms because instead of having geographical boundaries, the boundaries of the kingdom of God are primarily spiritual boundaries. There are no physical walls. There are no physical borders. But the kingdom of God does in fact have borders. The borders of the kingdom of God are faith and repentance. But it's also like other kingdoms in that it has kingdom citizens, for example, who live under the authority of a king and who represent the kingdom as they live among people who are not of the kingdom. So in the kingdom of God, Jesus is king and the citizens of the kingdom are those whom God saves by grace through faith. And when kingdom citizens meet together, we call that that outpost of the kingdom, we call it the church. And like other kingdoms that have a passport that help identify us as citizens of the kingdom, the kingdom of God has a passport. The passport is the Holy Spirit. And so when local churches gather together and they identify and recognize new members like we do here a few times a year at our member meetings. We bring people forward and we recognize them. It's like the outpost of the kingdom acknowledging like, yes, this person is indeed a kingdom citizen. They've repented of their sin, they're trusting in Jesus Christ, and they have the Holy Spirit living inside them. Another way. The kingdom of God is like any other kingdom is that there is admission required to be granted citizenship. Now, all things that are selective, all things that are important probably have some sort of admission requirement. If you want to go to Harvard, guess what? You need at least a 1515 on the SAT. If you want to run the Boston Marathon and you're a guy in his 40s like I am now, you need to run at least a 310 to be able to get into the Boston Marathon. But to be granted admission into the kingdom of God, there is a requirement, and here is what the requirement is. Ready? Childlike faith. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Notice Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Like, who are the two such? And thankfully, Jesus answers that question for us in verse 17. And truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. 
So kingdom access is granted only to those who receive the kingdom of God like a child. Only to those who receive the kingdom of God with childlike faith. Now, there are a couple of important words here in verse 17. It'd be good for us to note. The first is receive. In fact, if you're a, a Bible circler, that would be a great word just to circle or to underline. Receive. Because here's what's true of all Christians. We have all received kingdom citizenship. None of us have earned kingdom citizenship. And that's where all of the illustrations and the parallels that we could make about the kingdom of God and access to the kingdom of God begin to break down. Because it's conceivable that if you scored a 1500 on your, or 1520 on your SAT, you could think, well, you know what? I earned or merited access into Harvard. And if you ran a three-hour marathon, you could think, I earned or I merited access into the Boston Marathon. But there is absolutely no earning or meriting citizenship in the kingdom of God. There is not a single Christian on earth who has ever or will ever earn citizenship in God's kingdom. Like That's what Jesus has been driving home, especially in the text we saw last week. And that was the Pharisee. God, thank you that I'm not like those who have not earned your favor. Because I fast twice a week and I give a tithe of all that I get. Look at all that I do. What about the tax collector? This man who had absolutely no merit with which to earn salvation. And yet this is the man who goes home justified. He went home as a kingdom citizen. Why? Childlike faith. I am a helpless sinner and Christ is a merciful savior. You see, friends, we receive citizenship to a kingdom we do not earn. Another way of saying that is we receive salvation as a gift by grace through faith. Right? Hashtag Ephesians 2. The second word to notice that's important in verse 17 is the word child. The word child. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. The kingdom of God belongs to those who have childlike faith. Or to put it another way, entrance to the kingdom is received by those with childlike faith. Notice this is not a call to be childish. In fact, the scripture commonly calls believers to grow up. For example, Ephesians 4.15, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into him who is the head, into Christ. Or 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Amen? Amen? Amen. Like growing is a part of living as a Christian. We're not to be childish, but we are to receive the kingdom with childlike faith. And I would argue we are to continue in the kingdom with childlike faith. Like that should mark every single Christian. 
And when Jesus said the kingdom is received like a child, he isn't primarily referring to some sort of inherent quality in children like their imagination or their self, lack of self-consciousness or their simplicity. Like those are things we think about in our kind of self-critical ideologies of today, but that would have been foreign in the first century. So if that's not what Jesus is referring to here when he's talking about childlike faith, then what is he referring to? What is childlike faith? And here's a definition that may be helpful. Childlike faith is dependent trust. Childlike faith is dependent trust. Now think about infants for a minute. They are completely dependent on their parents, on their caregivers. Like they can do nothing, virtually nothing, but make a mess on their own. Like if an infant is going to eat, guess what? It takes an adult, it takes a caregiver to feed that child. If an infant is going to move from one place or to another, guess what? They need an older person or someone that can move already to make that happen. Infants can't even clean up the mess that they make. But think about this. An infant is dependent, but, but so trusting. In fact, there are fewer things maybe closer to heaven, this side of heaven in this world, than an infant who's like laying against you, you know, a little face up against your neck. You feel the breath there and just sleeping, right? Just trusting. Just resting. Like even better than holding a puppy. It's wonderful. Why? Because they just lay there and they sleep trusting. And that's the picture of those who receive the kingdom. It's not a picture of us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps or us kind of bringing our, you know, our list of accomplishments to the Lord. It's the picture of an infant trusting in the safe arms of their loving, protective father. We are dependent We recognize that on our own, we've made a mess of things, and we are incapable, like an infant, of even cleaning up the mess that we've made. But the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes to see that on our own, we are not capable of saving ourselves. We are as capable of saving ourselves as an infant is of climbing Everest. And so we trust in our Father in heaven, and we trust in the substitutionary work of God the Son, Jesus Christ. And if you want an example of what this looks like, just look back at the tax collector from last week. Verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. And I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
There's one more thing we need to capture from the definition of dependent trust, childlike faith. And it's, it's this, our trust, our childlike faith is not a blind leap into the unknown. Like saving faith is not just rolling the dice of our dependence and wherever it lands, that's where we'll put our trust. No. Like dependent trust, the kind that receives the kingdom, is always rooted in the character of God. Always rooted in the character of God. Let me illustrate like this. Children are dependent and children are trusting, but they are dependent on and most trusting in those who have demonstrated their reliability. That's why babies, after they're, they're very old at all, they feel more comforted when mom or dad is nearby, even when the person holding them is completely trustworthy. Why? Because their trust is rooted in the character of dad and mom. They know dad's voice, mom's voice. They know that dad and mom have always provided for them. They know that dad and mom have always been there for them and cared for them and protected them. In fact, even as children get beyond the infant stage and begin to talk, you're riding in the car and they're asking like, where are we going? Don't worry about it. I'll tell you when we get there. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like they do not ask because they're thinking to themselves, I have to know where we're going because I have to know how to find my way back home. No. They trust in their father and their mother, and they don't ask because they're fearful that they might be headed towards harm. Like they don't know where they're going most of the time, but they dependently trust because their trust is rooted in the character of their parent. My dad, my mom, they've always cared for me. They've always sheltered, it, sheltered me. They've always guarded me. They've always watched over me. They've always provided for me. Why would they not now? Friends, that's childlike faith. So brothers and sisters, we can dependently trust in the character of our God. We may not know the details of what God is doing in this season of life. You may be going through a season of life right now that you're like, I have no idea what God is doing. Like, I don't know the answer. I don't know why God would, would allow me to go through what I'm going through right now. Like, this is the hardest season of my life. Friend, we can trust in the character of God even if we don't see the way ahead. Like his word is a lamp for our feet, right? Not a flashlight for our, the miles down the road. It's not a headlight. We may not know what God has for us in the next step. We may not know how he can make good out of our pain, but we have his promises. We can read about his faithfulness. We've experienced the reliability of his character, and we can dependently trust on him like children. That's how we enter the kingdom. That's how we live in the kingdom. So there are a few ways that you might be hearing the message this morning. 
First, for some of you, you might be here this morning and you need to surrender like a child and you need to trust in Jesus Christ for the very first time. And what we've been praying about even this morning, whether you're here or you're watching online, is that as we have read God's word together and as we've sung God's word together and as God's word has been prayed and as now as God's word has been proclaimed, that God would be working through the power of his spirit to soften your heart, to open the eyes of your heart, so to speak, that you would see that there is a God who has created all things, to whom all things, including you and I and everyone else, rightly should worship. And yet, you and I and everyone else who has walked on the face of the earth except Jesus Christ and him alone have not given God his due. We have not rightly honored him. We were born into this world bent out of shape by sin, bent towards desiring to worship the creature rather than the creator, bent on being on the throne of our own lives rather than bowing down and worshiping God who rightly sits on the throne. To make matters worse, we've contributed to that by our own sin, by our own rebellion, and in that way, every human on the face of the earth is, is very much alike. And therefore, we are fairly, justly, rightly under the wrath of God. Because God is perfect, and he's holy, and he's righteous, and he's fair. And he can't wink at sin. He can't just look the other way at our rebellion. There's a price that is to be paid, and the price for that is Death is eternal separation from him. The glorious hope of the gospel, however, the glorious good news that we celebrate every time we gather is that God, in love, while we were still rebels, while, while we were still treasonous against him, God provided his son to enter into our world fully God and fully man, to live without sin, although he was tempted over and over again, and to willingly die as a substitute in our place for the sin of all who believe in him. And he took that sin. And for those who turn and trust by faith that he is the Son of God and he did die on the cross for our sin, we not only have our sins no longer counted against us, but we have the, the perfection, the moral perfection of Jesus Christ counted in the final grade book. God knows our F's and our D's. He knows of our failures and our sins. He knows we're not innocent but he declares us not guilty by means of substitution. So we're praying if you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that today would be the day where you turn and you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And any one of us that you saw up here this morning would love to talk to you about that. The people sitting around you would love, I promise you, they would love to talk to you about that after service today. There's a second group maybe here this morning who's hearing this message 
and you're here and you're, you're needing to rest in the saving work of God like a child dependently trusting in their good father. Maybe you're consumed with the weight of your own sin and you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, but you're just consumed with how far short you still fall from God's holiness. And that is eating your lunch, stealing your joy. You're like, I'm, I'm declaring war on my sin, but you know what? I, I, I failed this week here, and I failed last week here, and then I failed, and I'll probably fail again this week. That, friend, is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, we go to war against our sin. Yes, we strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Yes, we put off the flesh and we walk according to the Spirit. But if and when we do fail, friends, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who says that that daughter, that son, they're mine. And my blood covers their failure. It covers their sin. There is therefore now no condemnation. And then a third, perhaps, group here this morning are those of us who need these truths to reshape the way we pray for others and the way we worship and the way we share the gospel. We need these truths to reshape the way we pray because some of us are guilty of maybe only praying for those that seemed a bit closer to saving grace. Maybe praying just for those who, it seems like if if God would save them, think of the kingdom impact. And we, without even knowing it, have, have kind of selectively chosen who we think are most likely to succeed in God's kingdom. And we need to repent of that, and we need to trust in it. These truths should shape the way we pray. It should shape the way we look at the vulnerable among us and the helpless among us and the, the, maybe the very, very young or the very, very old or those who seem to offer nothing by way of return. Others of us need it to shape the way we worship I mean, little else will change our worship more than these truths. That God saves those who are incapable of saving themselves. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. And that we come before him with childlike faith. Not having it all figured out putting all the pieces together, no. We come to him as children coming to their good father. And this should shape the way we share the gospel. Rather than leading with moral change, we should lead with the gospel. (laughs) Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. We, We should be totally shocked if anyone has any ability to at all clean up their lives, even in a small way, apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not going to happen. It's the simple truths of the gospel of Jesus Christ given and received with childlike faith. It should shape the way we share the gospel. It should shape who we present the gospel to and how we present the gospel. Like you don't have all the answers? Guess what? Neither do I. 
Christians are not those with all the answers. Christians are those who have received by grace that which we could not deserve, could not merit, could not earn. You see, we can all benefit this morning from these reminders of the kingdom priorities of Jesus, of the Savior who does not hinder the least and the overlooked and the forgotten, but who welcomes us to come and find salvation and find rest. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, quite simply, we ask that you would take these truths and like seed planted in good soil, you would sink them deep down into the soil of our hearts. That it would do more than just transform the way we think and transform the way we act, but it would change our desires and change our affections would alter our worship. So Father, we pray that you would do as only you can do now. Thank you that you provided your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for his perfect obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Thank you that he is no longer in the grave but is alive. And one day we'll return and we long for that day when we who are your children will be gathered together. We will at last be at home. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, for his glory and for our eternal joy. And now church, may the grace of God sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.